fantastic marks was not only called Space Baby, but was billed in the Radio Times as a strange and scary story of a baby boy named Max who got lost at Cape Canaveral when his parents turned their backs. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, that no one else ever seems to, is writer Johnny Morris. Johnny, what are you up to and where can we find it? I'm currently writing an article for Doctor Who magazine about uh, the different studios they used in the 1960s, and that'll be coming out in a Doctor Who magazine special in a few weeks' time. So that's what I'm working on right now. Well, anyone who knows me will know that I'm actually really looking forward to that. Anyway, we're moving on to your first choice, and I've just said welcome, which is quite appropriate for this. Well, I'm sure you all identified that. That was the sound of bat and ball from a tape that came free with a computer that probably a lot of you have, but maybe didn't play this. Johnny, what was that? That was the only game that you got free with your BBC Micro. I think it would be familiar because it was always the one, one of the ones you always played in schools. And it was just a little yellow line that slowly went down the screen with a little square yellow block that you bounced off. And it was terrible. <laughs> it was on the tape called Welcome that came with the BBC Micro. Now, I've scoured the entire internet for any details of the tape, and there's none at all. There are some disc images, which to me says a lot about BBC Micro owners, but no information about it at all, apart from a YouTube video that I got bored about <laughs> 90 seconds into. So what else was on this tape? Well, it was designed to sort of showcase what the BBC Micro could do, but they're all sort of fairly sort of simple, basic literally basic programs though you're sort of impressed by programs where you would type a letter on the keyboard and it would appear on the screen that was one of them <laughs> the keyboard would be assigned notes so you could play a piano on it another one would be a, a slowly forming picture of marilyn monroe a sort of andy warhol type prints <laughs> it's not like a precursor to internet porn it, 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 it was the very first internet porn i think it was showcasing the graphics of going well that's not particularly good and there's also biorhythms which is the bizarrest thing of all where you type in your date of birth and this little, little graph would appear and it would tell you today is going to be a good day for you emotionally but not intellectually so you've just bought a computer and now you have this bizarre sort of pseudo astrological program <laughs> and it's like no one has ever done biorhythms before or since it was just one of those bits of i think just to show it could do graph there was another game which is um kingdom which i think is another one which people played in schools you're in charge of a little city and you've got to decide how much you feed your population and how much you allocate to guards and how much you allocate to preventing a flood and then you press return and there might be a flood there might be little letter t's that jog on over to your city from the mountains and steal your grain and so you sort of go that's sort of very primitive but you go that is the game that is now civilization it's essentially the same thing it's just it's boiled down all the frustration into just typing in three numbers that's all you do well i also because i had the zx spectrum we also have biorhythms on that what i remember is we got bored putting our own details in and for some reason we decided to put james bond in completely i don't know where we got the data birth from what i remember was the emotion bar on that just just a straight line across the top and the highest level was just quite appropriate given his interest in the ladies but it's interesting that the spectrum also had a introductory cassette called horizons which actually samira armad talked about a couple of shows ago and that really wasn't game orientated at all i think it was through the wall on it the bat and ball game i think there were some card games that i couldn't quite work out when i was a kid but it was made 
saying these sort of saying, look, this is what the Spectrum can do very, very slowly. And it sounds like the BBC Micro was the same, really. Yeah, I mean, there was a sort of a tour. So you were supposed to load one program, stop your cassette. Very, very important. I think that appeared on the screen. It was shouting, stop your cassette now. <laughs> and it would, you know, show off these sort of bizarre patterns. And it would, now play your cassette again. So it was like your, your little afternoon of seeing what you could do. And then you would never, ever, no one would ever play this tape again. Maybe for the games, but apart from the rest of it, you just go, you never look at it. Because within a week, you'd have got a computer game that was much better than any of it. You'd have Croker or something like that, or one of the Pac-Man knockoffs they had as well. Well, I was going to say, my main recollection of the BBC Micro is that it didn't have as many games as the Spectrum. That's why I remember all these games like Surf Red and Fat Worm Blows a Sparky that nobody else ever remembers. Or Gilligan's Gold as well, that's another one. But the BBC Micro, it seemed that every game everyone had, and they were all almost uniformly good. I mean, there were things like there was Elite, there was, was there something called Frack about a caveman that was a platform game, all kinds of things like that. And although they had a very limited sphere of games, they had a really high quality bar. Did you ever wish you had a Spectrum instead? I think I briefly wanted a Commodore 64 because <laughs> my friend Benjamin Blackmore had uh, the Ghostbusters game, and I was just impressed because it actually could do the Ghostbusters music. The game itself was absolutely terrible. It was just driving the van around the city. But I no, I think the BBC Micro's games were fantastic. I mean, there was the Red Letter Day when Elite came out, and suddenly everyone was just going, this is now 10 years ahead of every other computer. We've got 3D graphics. I mean, before you'd have, you're flying down the Death Star type 3D stuff, but this is, you can go to planets, you can go to space stations, you can uh, crash into suns, all the things you want to do in a, in a sort of open-ended game. It was followed up by a thing called Revs, which is a racing car game. It was one of those things where they were trying to make a very realistic simulation. And just like it takes you, I don't know, years to train to be a top Formula One driver, this game, you'd spend about six months and then you'd get around the track for the first time. <laughs> Because it was just incredibly fiddly and difficult. Well, that's reminded me of possibly no, my second least favourite Spectrum game of all time. I'm not even going into what the worst one was, but there was one called Raid Over Moscow. I mean, how of its time was that? Where you had to go through all these kinds of levels to launch a strike on Russia. I think it ended with you battling what I assume was Chernyenko's robot in a control room. But <laughs> the problem was it started with this level where you had to get all these attack planes out of a hangar. And it was impossible because you had to juggle three keys at once and you would crash them all and without them out of the hangar you couldn't play the rest of the game what was the point of that why make a game that was impossible to play before we move on just one question i have to ask a bbc micro owner did you ever record the chip shop on radio 4 with fred harris where they had just a couple of minutes of bbc micro code at the end of each edition i did it and it never worked <laughs> okay well if anyone could actually get an off-air recording of a bbc micro program to play it was probably this guy. Well, I made a bit of a mistake there because it wasn't actually that guy. That's a bit of My Friend Jack by The Smoke from 1967 because I don't really have anything I can use as a clip for this. It's a strip from The Dandy. Johnny, what was it? Jack Silver and Curly Perkins. It was 
build as on the top and it was the science fiction running story in the dandy in the late 70s from i got the dandy in about 1978 to 1980-ish and it was the best bit of the magazine it was in um, the central pages it was in full color and it was science fiction and unlike everything else in the beano and the dandy at the time this was all one continuing story it was cliffhangers and regular characters and plot developments it, i mean i should i should have been getting 2000 ad or something but i was really into jack silver and curly perkins it's on an alien planet called marsuvia and they all live in this sort of futuristic walled city and there's a villain who's called captain zap who's sort of a green skin skull-like bold face kind of like the mekon but not copying who would be gradually trying to take over the city using various aliens that lived in the on the jungle of this planet which would always sort of be things like a hoover that was covered in fur <laughs> an alien that sort of sucked you know or an alien hot air balloon or something slightly similar to things you had on earth the other sort of fascinating thing with this i think is that it was that period in 1970s comics where whenever they did a sort of sciencey fictiony thing they were sort of always stuck about 20 years out of date so you'd have the technology in it would be from Dan Dare or from Flash Gordon. It was all sort of this 1940s, 1950s look, even though this comic strip was being written and drawn in 1979. It was very sort of odd that everything was sort of so stuck in the past. Well, I mean, the dandy itself was kind of stuck in the past, and that's why I think it's never really worked when they tried to do relaunches, you know, where all the characters had, I don't know, hoverboards and WAP phones and so on, because the retro feel to it was always part of the appeal. You know, the whole image of the naughty schoolboy was out of date by the 70s. But definitely the sci-fi ones seem to be rooted in the past because I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, there were things like, I don't think you can really count Brassnecks, that was outright comic, but robots did not look like that by the 70s. Yeah, I mean, there was a strip about a boy who has a robot costume that he puts on he becomes a robot and it would look like something from you know plan nine from outer space it was like this is after star wars yeah. but it was like no no we I, I know how to draw robots like from 1950s and that's what they always look like and you know and, and jack silver was all those sort of frank hampton type spaceships you know those sort of very sleek rounded things where everything's like like the damn dare stuff but bore no relation to anything else that was happening at the time in science fiction it was so out of date Cully perkins would always save the day with his sort of earth know-how which would usually be that he'd know how to make a stink bomb or he'd know how to build a catapult catapult and that catapult would uh, you know it would fire a stone into the alien that looked like a hoover and make it sort of make its nozzle backfire into captain zap's face he'd get covered in dust and then be moving on to the next installment but the reason i stopped getting the dandy is remarkably i think this story had a final episode it was and now curly perkins is going back to earth and saying goodbye to jack silver and it's like they've ended they've actually ended it you get used to like comic strips would just vanish without explanation like no this is the final installment there'll be no more after this yeah they did what they replaced it with i went to doctor who magazine after that one no, i mean there is the thing about to me as a child the dandio seemed to be more serious and although i got it there were strips in that i actually didn't like because i found them boring the big one for me was black bob i know the usual thing to say about it is the viz parody black bag but it just always seemed to be that the shepherd would get knocked unconscious and lose his memory and you know black bob would have to i don't know pay his taxes and so on until old morag worried that he'd not been to collect his groceries for several weeks and then he'd be airlifted to hospital and black bob would be given a medal or something so i just couldn't see the point of strips like that where they weren't fun 
They weren't entertaining. They just seemed to be just happening and almost wagging a finger at you. Yeah, they had that sort of scratchy artwork as well. So it always sort of looked kind of like something from the 1960s. It looked very out of date. When I was thinking about this, I was going, what were the other strips in the Dandy at the time? And I was going, well, it was clearly um, uh, Little Plum. It's like, no, that's the Beano. Or it was Bastard Kids. No, that was the Beano. You go, what was actually in the Dandy that I liked apart from Jack Silver? And I think I liked um, this thing called The Jocks and the Geordies, which was about um, two schools on the Scottish Tynan Ware border. And they would just end up having fights and it would sort of alternate. Occasionally but the jocks would win and they'd punch the hell out of the Geordies. Occasionally the Geordies wouldn't punch out the jocks. And occasionally they'd team up, you know, there's sometimes there's peaceful solutions and sometimes they'd both come off worse. Well I do remember speaking of things being slightly out of step with the times, always being baffled by the fact one of the Geordies had a kind of noddy holder cut <laughs> with the cap. So in fact it made him look like Angus Young from A C D C. I remember thinking, why does he have hair like that it was just slightly outside my frame of reference but they'd not bothered to change the way they drew it as fashions changed that was the only thing other part of it i remembered i think because my sister got the beano and my brother get looking and i'd read all three and no one else would read the dandy because it's the dandy it's not as good okay well we might not be able to remember everything that was in the dandy but at least it's fairly certain it existed but your next choice we found absolutely no evidence of at all so Let's just have a listen to this clip and then we'll talk about it. Well, that was Acker Bilk's version of the Mr. Men theme. I bet you weren't expecting that to exist. <laughs> Obviously, everyone remembers the Mr. Men, but there's some that kind of slipped through the cracks. And one of those is... Mr. Oil or uh, Mr. Petrol. It's uh, an illicit bootleg Mr. Men book. The story of this is, I, th- I think we were on a holiday sometime in about 1980-ish. And at a garage, we picked up what I thought was a Mr. Man book because it was white, it was square, it was the same thing. And it had a Mr. Man on the front who I think was sort of round like Mr. Happy, but orange. It had a sort of scribble underneath. So if you looked sort of quickly, you'd think it was Roger Hargreaves. It was something like Mr. Oil or Mr. Petrol or, you know, Mr. Esso, whatever garage was doing this. There was a badge as well. I had a badge for this this character. And inside it, it was this sort of, you know, this sort of chunky felt tip style of artwork that was Roger Hargreaves. But I think the story in it was about how wonderful oil is. And you'd see a picture of an oil rig and go, this is where oil comes from. And these are all the things oil makes. <laughs> I, I may have extrapolated, but there was definitely this other book. I've looked at the whole list of Mr. Men books and there was no record, but there must have been this one. Well, it's quite possible because while I was trying to find any trace of it at all, I did stumble across something that now I know there were obscure Roger Hargreaves books. I mean, there was the John Mouse series, the Roundy and Squarey series, all kinds of Mr. Men spin-offs. Like, I think there was a book about the worm from the Mr. Men, that sort of thing. But I did find out there was a book called Mr. Spendy, written by Kathleen Smith rather than Roger Hargreaves. And it was for the Huddersfield and Bradford Building Society. And it's now worth £100 second hand. Hang on, hang on. 
I'm going to type in Mr. Spendy on the computer to find out. This is all live, listeners. This is quite exciting, actually. That's it. That's it. That's it. Well, Mr. Be Solved. It wasn't Mr. Oil or Mr. Petrol. It's Mr. Spendy. Mr. Spendy. And yes, the badge. You see, it was, a, it was different writing. I've got the picture in front of me. It's different writing, but you think it looks like Roger Hargreaves. Okay, well, I'm going to check and see if I actually have that and if it's worth something. Yeah, I was going to say, you might be 100 quid up. There were a couple of scans for it online. One that I can see, because he's a large orange one in the top hat, and and there's a drawing where he's sitting with a green counterpart on a chair decorated with what looks like the cover of the 3D EP by XTC. <laughs> That's a bit of a niche reference, but anyone who's seen it will know exactly what that looks like. I'm just amazed that this happened because surely you wouldn't have imagined he'd let somebody else write one. Yeah, it's some sort of like I don't know sponsorship deal or something. It was an odd thing to have, I think, because it wasn't quite like the other Mister and books. It wasn't funny. It was obviously my my memory is really unreliable here because I thought it was about petrol. I think it was about you know why you must save or something like that. You know why it's good to put your money in a building society and stuff. I'm pleased my memory is not totally at fault that he does look like Mister Happy and he is orange. So I wasn't completely deluded. While I'm here, I do have another book which I can't find. I tried doing it on the internet and can't get anywhere. It's about a boy who falls down the back of a sofa and is miniaturised, and he has an adventure with licorice all sorts and springs and scissors chasing him through the dark interior of the sofa. You are not going to believe this, but unreleased at the time of recording, that's featured in the episode with Will McLean. It's <laughs> called In the Sofa! We managed to identify that as well. It's called In the Sofa. I typed that in. Why didn't it come up? Okay, well, from In the Sofa to somebody who used to spend a lot of time sitting on a sofa, I'm sorry, that was one of my worst links <laughs> ever. Here's a clip. I want to find out exactly how acute Mr. Food's taste buds are. So I'm going to, I've got um, seven different types of food here. I'm going to feed them to him, right? Oh. First one is this pate. Oh, <laughs> no. Oh, dear. <laughs> Okay, well that was an interview with Mr. Food of And That's Before Me Tea fame. But Johnny, who was talking to him? That was Carmen Ejogo, who um presented the five o'clock show on the power station on BSB, which I watched every day until BSB stopped, sadly. It was a great little show. She was a sort of, she was a really good presenter because um, she was utterly sort of petrified of doing it. We'd just keep on telling people, I'm really nervous. I don't know what I'm doing here. That sort of made you warm to her. This is the very, very odd thing because this is me being uh, 16 or 17. So there would be no nostalgia value in it at all if they hadn't wiped it all. And I was just sort of thinking back, going, I used to record this show. I used to sit there and, you know, waiting for my favourite bands of the time to come on. I think I liked the Soup Dragons and the Happy Mondays and so on. And so you'd be recording them. And I remember she did an interview with Chesney Hawks, who had his hit around that time. And Chesney went, well, you do know my hit was written by someone from the 80s. And she just played four or five Nick Kershaw videos. The really exciting thing about this was this was the first time you got to see videos. You know, Top of the Pops would show a bit. They'd show, you know, the first two minutes. The chart show would do the same and they'd stick, you know, awful graphics over it and fast forward. But this would be right from the fade up, the whole video, all the way to the fade to black at the end. So you got to see extra bits. You got to see the whole thing uninterrupted with a tiny little power station logo in the corner. But you could actually watch videos properly. You would just go, I'm going to 
sit and see the video for Asia's chorus, record it and have the whole thing. And it always bugged me when you didn't get the whole thing because there'd always be extra little bits. You know, sometimes there'd be stories and, you know, it would be Breath of Life and it's an Alice in Wonderland thing. And at the end, there's a sort of payoff, which you never see on Channel 4 or Top of the Pops. So... It was exciting in that area. But I recorded it. I threw all the tapes away, obviously, because they had no value. And then two years later, you discover that, uh, oh, no, God, Noel Gay have thrown them all away. And go, oh, God, I am now Pamela Nash. I am now the person who, who had the only copies and, and chucked them. Well, that's the interesting thing about BSB, because for anyone who doesn't know, it was a very short-lived, I think it may only be about 18 months, but it was a sort of cable satellite service in the UK. And it was kind of the BBC to Sky's. I'm not even calling it Sky ITV sky's dustbin but it had all this interesting programming very little of it now survives i think jupiter moon does basically like you say a lot of it was just discarded and while things like i love keith allen aren't a particular loss there are all kinds of shows like i know a friend of mine ian greaves hello ian if you're listening has dedicated himself to tracking down there was a nightly satire show called up your news yes where it had very early appearances by people like chris morris armando yannucci Stuart lee richard herring you know they were all all over this thing all the time and nobody kept any of it officially there are offers that little short burst this amazing thing of who went on to do great things and it's just all gone to defend all the people who didn't record it it wasn't very good <laughs> the fundamental problem with it is and there's not enough news to do a historical show every single night that didn't stop the 11 o'clock show it was great if you were a fan of steve punt because steve punt was on everything that he was the he was he was the <laughs> bsb go-to comedian he was on laughter lines i think it was or laugh lines which was a nicholas parson show where you'd have four comedians doing sort of blankety blank thing of coming up with punchlines to jokes and stuff and he would also be every night on up your news nick hancock and um bob down was another one bob down was on loads and i loved him but you go this is a whole parallel universe of comedians that no one else has really heard of it was great because it it did actually once you got bsb you did actually watch it much more than the other channels the picture quality was phenomenally good it was actually much warmer and more high quality i think than what was going on at the time you turn on to bsb and watch um 31 west or something for some quality 31 west was basically the one show but 30 years earlier well that brings me round to i mean i saw very little bsb because we didn't have it but weirdly my grandparents in the council tower block where they lived had bsb i still don't understand that but i went round and spent most of the weekend there can you guess what was on that weekend well, that would be the, the legendary Doctor Who weekend, I imagine. It was 31 Who, which was the 31 West team basically doing an entire weekend of Doctor Who. That was the one where there was an interview with, I can't remember if it was Mervyn Hayesman or Henry Lincoln, but they managed to say the name Padma Sambhava five times in one sentence. I'm losing a lot of non-Doctor Who fans there, but Padma Sambhava was the llama in The Abominable Snowman in 1967. And they basically said, introducing the episode of The Abominable Snowman, in fact, the only surviving one, they said something like, oh, there were great characters like Padma Sambhava, Padma Sambhava, oh, and Padma Sambhava, oh, not forgetting Padma Sambhava. I was just transfixed by this, like, this name that hadn't been said on TV in, you know, 30 years nearly by that point. It had, that, it had a wonderful sort of awkwardness of these two presenters who 
clearly didn't like Doctor Who and possibly regarded it with a certain degree of contempt, <laughs> trying to sort of um, show some enthusiasm. I remember they interviewed Boris Hussain. Um, listeners, when he directed two Doctor Who stories, and they just go, ask him, go, out of all your episodes you've directed, which is your favourite? And he's sort of looking, well, I only did two. <laughs> the second one, Marco Polo. Right, and then it would cut to John Nathan Turner, who was the third presenter, sitting on a little rock surrounded by dry ice with... <laughs> With the sort of the sea list monsters from the exhibition, the the Melker sort of looming sinisterly behind him. It was a very, very strange thing. And the climax of the whole thing was they showed Edge of Destruction, which is a two part story with the parts in the wrong order. We were talking about comedy programmes that although they weren't very good, there'd be some point in revisiting them because of who was involved at early stages in their career. Now your next choice is a comedy series I'm not sure anyone wants to revisit ever. But more than speak, I have to know how dishes is prepared. The way to peel an egg for young or slice mulmar in the air. They ask, is Wiener schnitzel soup and what's he gone, Rene? So now I learn to cook as well in the perfect English way. Right, well, that was a clip of Andrew Sachs singing Manuel's Good Food Guide because I've searched high and low. I've talked to all kinds of people who normally have these sort of things. Nobody has a single second of this, which I can scarcely believe. But, Johnny, what was it? It's a show called Dead Earnest, a sitcom from 1982, which is set unusually in the afterlife. Andrew Sachs is the lead, and the premise of the show is that he's a bus driver who wins the pools, and when he's celebrating, he um, shakes a bottle of champagne and the cork hits him in the face, and he dies. I got a feeling that was the opening title sequence, and then he goes up to heaven, and he sees the pearly gates, which are just a normal set of gates with a sign on saying, closed for repearling. And that was essentially the, the premise of the show, that this guy goes to the afterlife, and the afterlife is basically um, like a council office or something. It's, it's like a council run by the sort of left-wing union people. It's like the GLC, essentially. And so there's stri- the angels are going on strike. There's um, queues. There's shop stewards and stuff. And so it's a show which is set in heaven, but it's, it's basically a parody of what Britain was like in the early 80s and how unions and councils were everything. I mean, it's Andrew Sachs and it's the other rest of the cast are the sort of blokes who would play the other prisoners in porridge. <laughs> I think Ives is in it and I think um, Derek Dedman, you know, the, the huge chin was in it. And there's episodes where he would look down and see his wife on Earth and she'd be going off with someone else. And... This is when I was very young and I'd watched the show and I wouldn't realise it was a comedy. I don't think it had a laughter track. And I just thought it was very sad and sort of very poignant that this is what the afterlife would be like. It's written by the same guys who did Brass. Really? It's what they did just before Brass. And Brass, as you know, is one of the best ITV sitcoms ever. It's actually very, very funny. And it's a a parody of about four or five different types of historical drama all sort of squished together. But it is laugh out loud funny. And this is what they did before. It's a very high concept show. What's interesting is the idea of a show in the, in the afterlife was one of the, one of the things that when you were writing comedy shows was always told, don't do. You know, 15 years ago, I was in the sitcom sort of merry-go-round and you get these sort of how to write a sitcom sheets from Paul Mayhew Archer and sort of the list of things not to do. You know, number one, don't do a, a sitcom set in the afterlife. 
And you go, well, but there's, there's only ever been Dead Ernest set in the upper. What did Dead <laughs> Ernest do that was so awful? Well, I was going to say, my main memory of it is actually not seeing it because it was massively hyped. Like, you know, it's going to be the next big thing with Manuel from Faulty Towers. And it flopped enormously. Um, I remember that we watched the first one because when I was very young, my family, we sat through all kinds of like odd and unfunny and esoteric ITV sitcoms just because it was the dumb thing. Very strong memories of watching Kim Vig, something called Rep about a rep company, which nobody remembers. Till Death, which was an elf god at one in the early 80s where his punk grandson lived with him and he had green hair and he used to say, shut up Kermit! We, sat, we watched all of them but after the first Dead Earnest my father said, that's enough of that that's not going on next week and that was it. And I don't think I was particularly upset by that decision. So it must have stunk to high heaven. Well, it may have done. It may have done. This is the thing when you're, I think, when you're about seven or eight and you're watching these shows. And because I didn't realise sitcoms were funny for a long, long time. I'd watch Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy on television and just think it was a science fiction show and had no clue that they were, it was supposed to be making me laugh. And I'd watch um, Some Mothers Do Have Them and just be petrified, going, he's going to fall <laughs> off a cliff, he's going to fall off a cliff. This, this, is, this, is, this isn't a sitcom, this is like Hitchcock. You know, this is actually a terrifying show. So you'd watch these things and just go, this is as a study of life. You know, I mean, you, you could watch Open All Hours now and go, this, is, this has no nothing funny in it. But I find this particular era of, of comedy quite fascinating because this is after a ton alternative comedy has come along but it's before channel four and it's when itv sort of tries to have a go alternative comedy and you get whoops apocalypse which is the sort of you know it's um a, that's rick mail and um, john cleese in this sort of very black comedy and you have things like ott which is them sort of experimenting trying to work out whether alternative comedy is naked men playing with balloons and women with big tits having buckets of water thrown over them is that alternative comedy we don't know maybe it is maybe it isn't so you, they're sort of sort of feeling their way with it it's, it's a sort of it's an interesting period but then channel four came along and itv went sunday 10 o'clock is our alternative comedy bit and we'll leave it all to channel four but it was i think it was a it was an interesting period and i think dead earnest is part of that because it's written by the people who did brass who were of the generation of alternatives of the early alternative comedians and so i think it was a black comedy and that's why i'm intrigued well really at the time of recording we've got no way of knowing for certain whether dead earnest was funny <laughs> or not but your last choice is a bunch of people that we really can make our own minds up about. Christmas turkey, you can stuff it. Roast potatoes, sprats and all. Lose this geezer for the Christmas. Okay, well, that was that rarest of things, a parody of a fairly serious song that's actually less funny than the original. That's the 
Baron Knight's doing another Brick in the Wall Part 2 as part of Nevermind the Presence. So, Johnny, you want to talk about the album that that was from? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things where people go, what was your first record that you ever had? And you sort of try and be cool and go, well, it was Video Kill the Radio Star or something. But the first record that I played a lot was Just a Giggle by the Baron Knights because I liked the songs and I did actually find it really funny, which is the tragedy of it, <laughs> because I was six years old and six-year-olds have a very sort of puerile sense of humour. And so the songs appealed to me, I think, because they are utterly, you know, daft and silly and you, you can get the joke. Even a six-year-old can get the jokes. That said, it is also a time cap. It's very sort of interesting that you have um, the songs where the jokes are that Prince Charles is in his 30s and hasn't got married yet. And you go, and he sort of fancies the three degrees. And you go, this is sort of an era you, you never understand. And there's a song about African politics. And there's a song which possibly might be interpreted as being slightly racist about African people working on the underground. Now, is this called Mind the Doors? Because I had to look at the track listing for this and I just my heart sank when I saw that. I mean, it is one of the knights doing the accent and stuff. Oh, no. So, in a sense, it's, you know, it's, it's cultural appropriation you could say but it is very very positive because he's just going how much he loves living in london how much he loves his job and how friendly everyone is it's actually it's celebrating diversity but it's obviously one of the baron knights putting on the accent so you sort of cringe at the same time so it's never going to be regarded as anything other than dreadful the time capsule thing is you have a uh, songs about the nhs you have songs about who shot jr i mean one of the weird things with this is these would be the Baronites putting lyrics over well-known songs, like, you know, another book on the wall. And so you'd have um, Who Shot JR, which would be using the music of Cars by Gary Newman. I actually really want to hear that now. I, I, I'd hate to be a Gary Newman completist, because every Gary Newman completist would have to have this in their collection. I mean, it's, it mark, it's interesting because it marks out which musicians had enough of a sense of humour to let the Baron Knights do this to their songs. And so you go, the Pink Floyd people, Gary Newman must have gone, oh, I don't care if someone wants to release a silly version of my song, that's fine. But I didn't realise it was a cover. I just thought there's this great synth track that the Baron Knights have done. <laughs> you know, this great bit of electronica that just happens to be weirdly about who shot JR. But again, that sort of really dates it, you know, because the Who Shot Jar was only sort of a mystery for about, you know, six months. Well, that's reminded me of something that nobody ever remembers that's really burnt into my memory. It was when Channel 4 first started. I thought I had to watch everything that was on it that was allowed to. Now, obviously, there was plenty that you weren't allowed to. That's a show on Friday nights called The Cut Price Comedy Show, which was a, a fairly, even at that age, I thought it was quite an unfunny sketch show. But one of the participants was Roger Ruskin Spear, formerly the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band who did a song each week, a parody song. And one week he did My Friends Outside, which is a parody of Our Friends Electric, where basically it's like the synth riff and a robot saying My Friends Outside and him saying, well, tell them to come in then. I remember finding that incredibly funny, but it's one of those things nobody remembers the Cut Price comedy show. I'm amongst them, unfortunately. The Baronites, I mean, they, they are that sort of era where things which weren't, you look at it now and you go, it's not that funny. Like, you know, probably Dead Earnest and other ITV sitcoms. But at the time, they seemed to be hilarious. And it's just, I think maybe people had a much more sort of, um, I don't know, puerile or much more sort of e easier sense of humour they were that they would find more obvious things, less sophisticated things funny. Um, 
Well, as well, I think children always like adults who aren't taking things seriously. The way you suppose you know, you'd see people. Well, you wouldn't see Pink Floyd on top of the pops, but you'd see people like, I think, Fiddler's Drama parodied on it. St. Winifred's School Choir. You know, everyone's being quite earnest in their different ways, and the Baron Knight's just like, they don't care. And I think that that had some appeal. That's why kids like the Sex Pistols, I think. More than anything to do with punk was that, you know, they, were, they weren't playing by those. So there you go, the Baron Knight's and the Sex Pistols linked by something other than Nevermind the Presents. It is sort of... um one of those odd things that the Bonzo Dog Doodah band are quite sort of highly regarded now. People go, you know, beer stroke, you go, oh, yeah, Vivian Stanshaw, you know, Neil Williams. Whereas the Baron Knights, who were, I think, much more popular or successful than the Bonzo Dogs ever were, they kept on going for about 20 years, from like the very early 60s when they're parodying the Mersey Beat groups and stuff, until about 1983, 84-ish, when I don't think they run out of steam. I just think um, other th- other people have taken over, the Grumbleweeds and stuff, and Russ Abbott and stuff, are now doing that sort of thing. And also, I think by that stage, the pop music scene had changed so rapidly that the idea of this band at the end of every year would, you know, putting out a record, taking the mickey out of a song, would be massively out of date. Well, I've got to say, the issue of accents aside, if there's anything good in them to rediscover, I'm actually all for that, because I never like the idea that something is labelled naff and that's it, you know, on the basis of what little surface knowledge people have, an outright blanket dismissal, because I can point to a contemporary theirs in some ways, although obviously he was a kind of serious rock star, but B.A. Robertson, until recently, was seen as the epitome of, you know, 70s into 80s naff. I remember Twitter again, vitriolic when he turned up on an old Top of the Pops. But recently, now his album's been reissued, because I did some PR for the re-releases, and suddenly people were coming out of the woodwork saying, do you know, his stuff's actually really good. There's a couple of dodgy ones, and that's what people remember, but the rest of it's really good. So maybe there is some good stuff hidden in the Baron Knights somewhere. Yeah, I mean, B.A. Robson, I think Bang Bang has sort of wordplay, which you would never normally get in records at that time. You wouldn't get people doing puns or um, stuff like that. So it's, it's he was sort of like Ian Jury and stuff. I think he was much closer to that sort of type of music. For the Baron Knights, I would just say, on this record, you've got two standout tracks as far as... <laughs> in, my, in my musical opinion um you know you have bounds fun 40 which is just someone reading out the pop charts they don't do it in the sample voice do they don't they? they do a sort of tony blackburn type thing they've taken a song and they've taken a band and put them together so it's you need hands by the stranglers and <laughs> you see you've laughed <laughs> see, that's actually quite exactly funny. so you've got like 30 you've got like 13 a run of these dive 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 by uk subs and it goes at number 11 the chance of the exchequer and that always just makes me crack up. And that's actually genuinely funny, I think. And there's a track called Space Invaders, which is, um, there's a sort of old pub song, the old barman who works at the plough. And they've done this as, um, a piece of synth pop, as it were. And it sounds great. It sounds like uh, the normal. And, uh, and that's an early incarnation of Daniel Miller from Mute Record. Yeah. It sounds like the normal. It sounds like, um, the band called Suicide, who just programmed a drum machine to be. And it's like, <laughs> so you've got this amazing synthesized bass going, flum, flum, flum. And then these little sort of space invader effects. And again, it's, I think it's actually genuinely funny in a way that I don't think people would give them credit for now. So that's a, that's a deep cut I recommend. I think it's on YouTube if you want people to check it out. So. Well, I didn't start this recording expecting to hear the Baron Knights compared to the normal or let alone suicide, but that's actually happened. But 
I've just got two questions about this album in closing to ask, which is one, I noticed in the track listing there is a song called Mash with the asterisks in. Is that a parody of Suicide is Painless called something like having a feeling is painless? Uh, it's it's about um national health is painless. It's um it's it is it is the song and it's um uh, national health is painless, it guarantees you pay less. But I am going private, if you please. Again, funnier than I expected. <laughs> and it's about how awful the NHS is. Again, it's a sort of little sort of um, a bubble of contemporary culture. I mean, they do sing it beautifully. I mean, it's kind of extraordinary how well the musicianship is for this silly knocked-off song. Well, my last question, I have to ask this because it's how I remember the Baron Knights as a child. Do they mention anywhere eating Christmas pudding? Because that seemed to me to be all they ever sang about. I, I think that that comes up in um, Never Mind the Presents, I think. But, you know, they made me laugh and I think they could be rehabilitated to an extent. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm actually off to download just the giggles. <laughs> Johnny, it's been great. Thank, Thank you. you very much, man. Cheers. Not On Your Telly by Tim Worthington. From Fish to Fun to Ski Boy, the ultimate guide to TV that time forgot. Find out more at timworthington.blogspot.co.uk. 